may be seated. I invite you to turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. As together we are going to be continuing on in this record of the lives, mostly of the kings of Judah, but also of, uh, of the northern kingdom after the division under Solomon's son Rehoboam. We have been reading about the way that God established Solomon's kingdom. And um, sometimes it's the case that we think to ourselves that politics and bureaucracy and all of those things are modern day inventions, that they're only part of uh, the Western world or uh, perhaps the world since uh, the 20th century, the, uh, the very latest, but that's not the case at all. Politics was present. Uh, in Solomon's day, and indeed bureaucracy and administration were part of his kingdom as well, part of its establishing. We'll see how uh, the kingdom uh, was growing and how much Israel had changed since the days of the judges and the days of these divided tribes without a, a central king. And we're going to see how Solomon ruled from Jerusalem. And what a glorious kingdom the Lord established in his hand. And we're also going to see some um, perhaps foreshadowing of the problems that would happen later on. And uh, uh, some things that were not so good as well. So we need to have our eyes open to look at that. But before we turn to God's word, let's turn to the God who gave it. And let's ask him to bless us. God, our Father, as we read this section of scripture today, remind us that it is in scripture for a reason. It's here to teach us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive that we would hear and that we would understand and that we would be able to apply these things in our own lives. Help us, O Lord, to remember that you are the one who raises up kings and brings them down, that you bring empires in and that you take them out again, and that any people, O Lord, who spend their time shaking their fist at you and denying your will, uh, that those people are on a pathway to ruin, but those who love you and who desire genuinely to, to serve you, well, then they are in a position to be blessed and will be blessed. Remind us of that. And remind us that doesn't just apply to countries, but also to families and individuals. Now, Lord, be with us as we read. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So King Solomon was king over all Israel. And these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Azariah, the son of Nathan over the officers, Zabad, the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend, Ahishar over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda over the labor force. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provisions for one month of the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim, Ben-Decker and Makaz, Sha'albim, uh, Beth-Shemesh and Elon, Beth-Hanan, Beth, uh, Ben-Hazed in Araboth, to him belong Succo and all the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab in all the regions of Dor. He had Talfath, the daughter of Sol- uh, Solomon, as his wife. Ba'ana, the son of Ahilud in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beth Shean, which is beside Zeratan below Jezreel, from Beth Shean to Abel Mahola, as far as the other side of Jokneam. 
Ben-Geber and Ramoth Gilead, to him belong the towns of Jer, the son of Manasseh in Gilead. To him also belong the region of Argob and Bishan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo in Mahanaim. Ahimaz in Naphtali. He also took Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, his wife. Baana, the son of Hushai in Asher and Eloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor who was in the land. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebuck, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon. And for all who came to King Solomon's table, there was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of the east, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of animals, uh, also of animals, of fish, I'm sorry, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the uh, benefits, I think, of Preaching Lectio Continua, and by Lectio Continua is preaching through books of the Bible, book or by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and so on. Um, One of the benefits of doing things that way is that it stops you from preaching only on a few selected hobby horse topics. It also stops you from atomizing the Bible, that is taking an individual portion of the Bible, taking it out of its context, whether it be a small pericope or whether it be a verse and then misapplying it, it forces you to address entire sections of the Bible. And therefore, you have to go through not only the entire sweep of redemptive history and talk about what was going on in every period, but you also have to address theological topics you might not want to. So for instance, uh, uh, if you practice Lectio Continua preaching, if you're an Arminian, sooner or later, you're going to hit Romans 9. And you've got to address what's in there. You may end up trying to wish away, for instance, the sovereignty of God that's addressed so strongly there, but, but you're going to have to face it head on. Uh, however, having said how much I love the Lectio Continua 
uh, approach, Lectio Continua preaching can present someone with particularly challenging scriptures and chapters that one has to address. For instance, this chapter. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I love, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not kidding here. I'm not saying this ironically or sarcastically. I, I really do. I love ancient government. I, I took socio and economic or social and economic history at uh, St. Andrews for a reason. I, I loved seeing the ways that, uh, that ancient societies were, were structured and so on and, and uh, all about demographics and things like this. Um, so in one sense, I could preach a sermon that I would enjoy entitled Solomon's Civil Service, but um, I don't think that that would be really what God gave us these verses for. Uh, I don't think he wants me to stand here and talk about all the interesting details of the government and administration of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon uh, and to do so until you all uh, begin to glaze over and drool or fall over or actively find excuses for going to the bathroom um, on a regular basis. So that would not be a good idea. But nonetheless, I, I have to address the fact that this, script, this, this section of Scripture is in Scripture. And what Paul wrote about the Scriptures is true of this section of Scripture as well. You remember how he said uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God uh, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is true of this section as well. And so therefore, my duty is not merely to dismiss these things or to cover them lightly or to, uh, to entirely spin them in a different direction that they really wouldn't take us in, but rather to see how we can make the, this actual chapter profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that you and I might be further equipped by it. And I think there are many things within this, uh, this particular chapter that we can learn uh, aside from um, how the civil service was minutely uh, structured in Solomon's time. First, we see that the author of First Kings, who has been telling us about the, the results of God giving Solomon so much wisdom, such amazing wisdom, we've seen how Solomon applied that wisdom in judging cases. We saw how he judged between these two prostitutes who were both claiming that the baby boy who was alive was theirs. But we now see how that wisdom worked out in the way that Solomon governed the nation that the Lord had given to him. Now, any good leader ruling a large and mighty people, as Solomon pointed out, will need not just wisdom himself, he will need help. He will need a lot of people, as a matter of fact, to help him. And the quality of the people who he chooses is of critical importance. A bad king has a tendency, or a bad leader, even to this day, has a tendency to choose friends and cronies, regardless of their own personal wisdom. If they are loyal to him, that's the person that he wants around. If they're going to say yes to his ideas, if they're merely an echo chamber, then the bad king will say, that's the person I want with me. But Solomon didn't do that. 
we do see that he chose a lot of the men whom his, his father uh, had put into positions of power, who were with his father David at various points. There's continuity with uh, his father David's administration. So some of the servants of David went on to become servants of Solomon as well. And he listened to them. These were wise men whom his father had, had put in positions of power and who had m- plenty of experience, plenty of wisdom themselves. One of the things that we're going to see is as we go through 1 Kings, as we move from the administration of Solomon to the administration of Rehoboam, that his son Rehoboam is not going to be as wise as he was. He's going to try to cut off the advisors from his father's age, the, the Salmonic advisors, and instead he's going to elevate those friends and cronies who he grew up with, men who have no experience and no wisdom and who set him on a ruinous policy. Now, as we went through those names, the long and difficult to pronounce list of names there, um, you should have spotted some guys that you are familiar with already. Uh, For instance, you should immediately have recognized Nathan, the prophet, who we learn was also a priest. You should have spotted, uh, as priests go, Zadok. You remember how Zadok, the priest, was the man who, uh, not David, Solomon, elevated in the place of Abiathar and Zadok, who was loyal to him, and also Benaiah, you would have spotted him as well. He was over all of the army. Uh, two of the men in the list are, we are told, married Solomon's daughters, and at least one of the names in the list is surprising. Uh, Abiathar, you remember that uh, Abiathar had been uh, loyal not to Solomon, but to Adonijah. He had wanted him to be the king. He had uh, had plans of serving in his particular regime. But when that failed, uh, Solomon did not put him to death. Uh, He instead sent him away to Anathoth. Now, some people have speculated, therefore, that what happened was that Solomon reestablished Abiathar in his position But it's more likely that uh, he continues to be listed because as a high priest, it was God who appointed them. It was not the king. And so therefore, while the king could exile him from Jerusalem, send him away, he could not remove him during his lifetime from that particular position. So uh, it is possible that he served in Jerusalem, but it's also very possible that it's simply the fact that he lived out the rest of his life uh, under Solomon's rule uh, and he was still listed as one of the high priests. But Zadok definitely has prominence throughout uh, Solomon's rule. Now, we see how the growth of the nation and how the glory that God had given them, it necessitated new rules and new roles within the kingdom. Our tendency, I think, often as uh, conservative Bible-believing types is um, to push against the idea of government. But a good government is a good thing. It's actually a blessing. Many people have pointed out, especially people who have been to places where the government is either inadequate or completely absent, that uh, the only thing worse than a bad government is no government at all when men do everything that they want to. One of the things that's very frightening is we are watching various sections of the United States descend into a condition of complete anarchy where there is very little uh, government going on. And where that happens, unfortunately, uh, people suffer greatly. Well, uh, that wasn't the case in Solomon's reign. He had many government officers who were overseeing various things, and they proved to be a blessing 
to the people. We see new roles. I mean, there are roles that we understand uh, implicitly. There's, uh, for instance, Benaiah, the head of the army. We understand that. Uh, but there are some, some ones that aren't as easy to understand. For instance, we, we hear of Zabed, the king's friend. What was, what was the king's friend? Was this just some guy who came over and had nachos and played, you know, uh, a PlayStation with, uh, with Solomon on the couch once in a while? No, that's not what, uh, what Zabed was doing. Um, the king's friend was, in essence, kind of a grand vizier. He was an advisor to the king, somebody who he went to and he sought advice from. I plan to do this. What do you think of that idea? That kind of, uh, that kind of guy. Hushai had held that position uh, in David's time. He was well-renowned for his wisdom. Uh, he was a man who gave good advice. Uh, modern leaders have usually had men like that as well near them. Uh, for instance, if you read of the, the life of FDR, uh, Harry Hopkins was his Hushai, his, his advisor, or his Zabed. Uh, if you read the life of Churchill, uh, Anthony Eden was his, his advisor, the man he always went to uh, and got advice from. Now, one of the things, though, that you should notice about Zabed, and it's very important to note, it's a small thing, Zabed was also a priest. He was a religious man, so he was somebody who would bring not just secular advice, but godly advice. One of the takeaways of this for you and I is when it comes to our most important advisors, the people who we really listen to, the people who we, we take our final direction from when we, we're not sure what course to take, the people who we choose for that particular role need to be godly. They need to be people who know the will of the Lord because they've been studying it. One of the things that I've seen happen many a time in marriage counseling is I will, I will talk to somebody and they will say, well, so-and-so, my friend, gave me this particular piece of advice. And it's not good advice. And I will ask uh, as judiciously as possible about your friend. Is this person a Christian? Well, no, but they, they're my friend and they love me and so on. So I want to listen to them. Well, just because somebody likes you is not necessarily a guarantee that their advice is going to be good. Choose people who, as a matter of fact, will often give you advice that hurts if it's true. What you need to hear is the truth. You need to hear God's wisdom, even if it doesn't naturally comport with what you want to hear. Avoid the echo chamber that so many modern people build for themselves. But moving on, we see also that uh, Solomon had scribes. He had multiple scribes. Now, these scribes would be less of the, the kind of guys who were simply copying things down and more of the secretary of state uh, kind of thing, that kind of secretary. Uh, he had one scribe probably to handle home affairs and then one scribe to handle foreign affairs. Then we have the recorder. The uh, recorder is actually, it's an interesting uh, uh, role in the ancient world. It was more of a remembrancer. He brought to the king's attention the things that he needed to remember. Often, uh, the remembrancer would say to the king, ah, king, um, you can't do that. It's actually against the law, that kind of thing. He would bring to his remembrance uh, important uh, people as well. Uh, what's the name of that guy? And the remembrancer would, uh, would bring to his mind uh, those things. So he uh, would bring 
um, to his attention matters of importance and stop him from making mistakes, hopefully, that would contradict or contravene his own laws. We also now see something interesting happening. Uh, he has divided the kingdom into districts. And these kingdom uh, districts that he's created sometimes went across traditional tribal areas. So they would cover more than one tribe. So it wouldn't just be the land of Judah that this district encompassed, but Judah and Benjamin. And he's put men in charge of these areas. Uh, and he's also created a man who's in charge of forced labor. The man who was in charge of getting people to build the government projects. Government projects would include things like the building of storage cities, the creation of cisterns to, uh, to, to contain water, building of defenses of various strategic cities, uh, mining and quarrying. All of these building projects required stone. Uh, it had to be taken from places. Also, the, uh, the kingdom required its own internal revenue. So it would have been up to them to, to mine precious metals, particularly silver was, uh, was very important, although gold is going to be what uh, is going to be the gold standard for, sorry about that, Solomon's um, uh, regime. They would have also been in charge of building roads, making sure that the commerce continued to flow. They, they were essentially in charge of getting men from the tribes to do all the things the tribes would not have done themselves because they were more oriented towards the entire kingdom uh, and its good rather than their individual particular area. When the people, though, had initially called for a king, Samuel had warned them, you don't know what you're asking for, he says. You're going to put a man in charge of you, and what he is going to do is he is going to make you all work. He's going to tax you. Things are going to be harder for you then than they are now. You don't understand that. Samuel had said this in 1 Samuel 8.11. You may want to turn to 1 Samuel 8. He said, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow the ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. Now what Samuel had warned them about, that this king would be taking the things that they had, taking even their, their sons and their daughters to serve in uh, his government. That had literally come to pass. And eventually, unfortunately, the amount of taxing and the amount of working uh, that Solomon put them to will become a, it'll become a problem. It'll result in rebellion. And eventually, although the, the root cause will be the, uh, the sad apostasy that, uh, that uh, Solomon is guilty of, his false worship and so on, that'll be the reason that the uh, kingdom is taken away uh, and split in half. Yet, uh, the, uh, one of the reasons will be the fact that he simply taxed and overworked the people. Now, we know we need to pay taxes. Unfortunately, every April rolls along, and I, I wish... Romans 13 weren't in the, the Bible for a few moments where I'm told that I'm supposed to pay my taxes. Uh, but uh, we are supposed to pay taxes. And the only way that things get done, generally speaking, in countries is via taxation. 
However, after a certain level, taxation becomes, dare I say, theft. When it's simply the confiscation of your wealth and the uh, handing it over to the, uh, the government. Uh, and unfortunately, it seems like Solomon's taxation is going to become heavier and heavier until the people do cry out under it. But that is yet future. Uh, another thing, though, that we read here that's a warning sign is that he had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem for two reasons. First, because horses came from Egypt. Now, uh, Solomon had very close relations with the Egyptians. He was married to Pharaoh's daughter. And so he was, uh, he was quite able. He not only got his own horses from Egypt, we know he was uh, a trader on of those horses. So they would buy horses in Egypt and then they would trade them, for instance, to the Hittites and to other empires around them. But what the Lord had said specifically to his kings in Deuteronomy 17, 16 was this, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. There was two reasons for that. One, obviously, the Lord did not want them to be completely intermingled with a pagan culture, especially the pagan culture they'd come out of. And secondly, as they increased the number of horses and they became a chariot army instead of an infantry, they would gradually become more and more dependent upon their weapons of war and their ability to count the number of horses they had and think that they were strong there. This is a problem that the people of God have had in every age. They look to themselves. They look to their own arms. And they say, we are as mighty as our army is mighty, instead of depending upon the Lord. When all they had is, is essentially infantry made up of peasant farmers and shepherds, well, then you have to depend upon the Lord. You, you can't trust in your own force of arms. But clearly we're getting to a position here where they have a standing army. That's another problem. Standing armies require heavy taxation. Uh, they also require places for people to live, soldiers to live. It creates a number of different problems. And the Lord was eager not to see those things happen, but Solomon is moving in that direction. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, what we are going to see as we go through First Kings is uh, the truth of what Cotton Mather said, which was religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother being uh, played out once again, both in the government and in the society. But... We can turn away from the unhappy kind of glimmerings of what's going to come on uh, later on uh, to happier prophecies that were coming to their initial fulfillment, particularly covenant promises. Remember, God had said to Abraham in Genesis 22, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And we read in verse 20 of First Kings 4, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. In a few hundred years, the Lord had built them into a mighty nation, and now they were as numerous as the sand in the seashore. The Lord's covenant promises were coming to pass, as unlikely as they seemed when God had made that promise to Abraham, just one old man and his old wife. What chance was there that they would actually occupy the land of Canaan 
where they would take away the, the villages and the cities from their, their enemies and then their descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the sea. Well, when God tells you it's going to happen, it's going to happen, no matter how unlikely it seems. When God tells you it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, there's going to be a universal flood, and you better start building a boat far inland should you do it. Yes. Okay, that's not a rhetorical question. If you're Noah, that's literally the, you know, the question. Are you going to do it? If you do, all of mankind and the, nation, uh, and the uh, animals will be saved. But if you don't, what's going to happen? You're, they're going to die. All right, so... When the Lord says it's going to happen, it is going to happen. God had also said, uh, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now this is amazing. What he's essentially said is all of the land in between <coughs> Egypt and Mesopotamia, that's yours. Okay? And now we're beginning to see that Israel is, is growing to such an extent that they almost, it looks like, have that land for themselves. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, this is verse 21, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So even if they didn't directly control that land, even if the, uh, the Jewish tribes weren't living in it, yet they were the ones who were in charge of the nations that actually occupied that particular area. The Lord has greatly blessed this people. They are becoming a kingdom to be reckoned with, a kingdom now other kingdoms seek alliances with, or kingdoms serve them, paying them. All of these prophecies were being fulfilled. And we need to understand this, brothers and sisters. It wasn't simply because uh, these were just such a, a, a wonderfully industrious and bright people. It was because the Lord loved them and the Lord prospered them. And while they were serving them, him and they had a godly leader, then good things happened. All of these prophecies were fulfilled because the Lord said they would be and he brought them to pass. Um, we see some interesting things also here. Uh, I, I don't know how many people have come across these verses and have been amazed that one man could eat 30 oxen. Uh, in one day, uh, there are a lot of people who, who think it was, you know, Solomon was just feeding himself and his family, uh, but that was not the case. Uh, the um, estimates for the uh, number uh, in the, uh, that Solomon fed from his own provisions consisted of somewhere between 15 and 36,000 people. We have to remember that uh, from those provisions that were given to him, all of his government officials, all of the soldiers, all of the people who could not go and farm themselves, they were being fed at his table. Incidentally, when uh, we, there's a division that's made between the fatted oxen and the regular oxen. Just to let you know, the fatted oxen were the, uh, the stall grain-fed oxen. They fed them up specifically so that their meat was very rich and they were very fatty. Believe it or not, they loved fatty meat. To admit, I would have done better in that age in terms of the meat cuts. I, I really would love fatted meat myself, um, as opposed to the uh, the leaner uh, oxen that would have grazed in the pastures. And to give you an idea of how expensive these things were, keep in mind that the ox was the tractor of the age. So every day, this guy was slaughtering the equivalent of 30 kabotas in order to uh, feed his table. All right, this is a uh, this is a huge outlay of money uh, that was going on. This was a time of activity, it was a time of plenty, it was a time of good rule, and it was a time when the people were happy. And this reminds us 
that a happy people, what does it take for a people to be happy? Well, good governance is something that has to happen in order for people to be happy. I don't think it's a, it's a surprise that uh, um, people in America are today unhappier, according to the statistics, than they've ever been. And very, very few think we're on the right track in terms of our government. We are a people who say we scream to the heavens, we are badly led. And then we elect more of the same, don't we? It's kind of, you know, you, you, you said you're on the wrong, but you, I don't get you. Um, but nonetheless, there is a direct connection between the quality of a nation's leadership and the quality of their lives. It's not the only connection, though. It's not merely economics. It's not merely prosperity. It's rather wisdom and godliness and a sense that you are on the right track. Uh, your conscience speaking to you, good, and that your, your nation is doing well. Those are things that make a people happy, and that is what happened in this time. They had a wise and a faithful king, a king who listened to God's word. At this point, he is still listening to the Lord and doing his will. And as a result, the kingdom itself is being blessed. His wisdom, we are told, and his understanding were epic. Matthew Henry points out, he says, The greatness of Solomon's wisdom is illustrated by comparison. Chaldea and Egypt were nations famous for learning. Thence the Greeks borrowed theirs. But the greatest scholars of these nations came short of Solomon. If nature excels art, much more does grace. The knowledge which God gives by special favor goes beyond that which man gets by his own labor. Some wise men there were in Solomon's time who were in great repute, particularly He-Man. I love that name, don't you? He-Man. Anyway, the others were Levites and employed by David in the temple music. He-Man was a seer in the word of God. Chalcol and Dardo were our own brothers, and they also were noted for learning and wisdom. But Solomon excelled them all. He outdid them and confounded them. His counsel was much more valuable. Why? Because he had the Spirit of God dwelling within him, giving him a wisdom that exceeded earthly wisdom. You'll see that as something that comes up in the Bible again and again. That's why Joseph was wiser than uh, the uh, Pharaoh's Magi, his, his wise men. That's why Daniel exceeded the wisdom of all the Magi of, of uh, the Babylonian kingdom. And again and again, and then later on the Persians. Again and again, you will see that the wisdom that God gives to his people far exceeds worldly wisdom. And again, that's something that we should remember. We can be intelligent, we can be learned, we can be educated, but we're never going to be truly wise unless we know the Lord. And one of the things that Solomon did right was he surrounded himself with men who knew the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis also points out that one of the marks of wisdom is that it seeks greater wisdom and it desires to explore the world around it. It's no surprise. I mean, I, I, I cannot stand the whole, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. We, we live in an age where materialists, dialectical materialists and atheists declare that they are the champions of science. And then they tell us that men can have babies. I mean, it's a simple, it's low-hanging fruit, but we see that kind of thing all the time. And then they tell us Christians are the enemies of science. I have to tell you that all of the greatest scientific inquirers 
of the past ages were also Christians. The Royal Academy of Science was established by Christians. One could list off name after name of great Christian scientists. And I don't mean the false sect that was established by Mary Baker Eady. I mean scientists who were genuine believers because they had a desire to explore the world that God had given them like Solomon did. Dale Ralph Davis, who's a wonderful commentator on this particular section of scripture, if you can pick up his commentary on 1 Kings, I would recommend it highly. He writes, wisdom is incurably and rightly curious. It ranges over the whole domain of God's realm. Since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, since there is no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity. There's a great phrase, rambunctious curiosity. I hope you've got a rambunctious curiosity on you. To ponder his works, both the majestic and the mundane, the task of wisdom is joyfully to describe and investigate all God's works. We may not be Solomon's in insight, but we can gratefully examine the same data. I once spoke to a scientist who described his job as discovering God's work after him. I simply follow along and I come to conclusions about the things that God has been doing through history. Well, we read also this, this wonderful conclusion in verse 25, really. It's in the middle, uh, well, near the end. But uh, it, it really is the conclusion of the matter of how people were living. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So we have here a picture of what happens under good, wise, godly government. You have rulers who are not constantly at war, who are not striving to to gain prominence and power, but who are providing calm and peace and contentment to their people because of their good governance, who are doing all that they can to establish an atmosphere in which people and families can thrive. Uh, Al Mohler overuses the term, but uh, what, what, the, uh, what is being sought here is human flourishing. And that's what a good ruler provides. It's a, it's a shame we don't have more good rulers. If we had more good rulers, we'd have more human flourishing going on. But that's what Solomon did. But what this does, that reminder, every man under his fig tree, what it's doing is it's looking forward to a time when that flourishing will be perfect, the time when the bugs are worked out, not just of humanity, but the entire system itself. After the return of Christ, after we live in the new heavens and the new earth, after we are living in a kingdom reigned over, not just by uh, a great earthly ruler, but the one who is greater than Solomon, Solomon's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of, actually, descendant of David, Uh, the Lord Jesus, who would be a greater than Solomon, a greater ruler. In Micah 4.1, we read, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into proning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. 
We learn that that will happen after the coming of God's servant, the branch, in Zechariah 3.8. We read, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon, the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. All of these things, this prefiguring, this this best of all kings uh, at a time when the Lord was establishing his people in the land, all of these things should remind us of the time that's coming. Now, it's very important that we remember to do this. As a people, particularly I find this is the case of us as, as conservatives, we have a tendency to look back and say the best is in the past. That the best of things have happened. It would have been very possible for somebody living under one of the latter kings in the declining years of Judah or Israel to say, ah, yes, the days of Solomon, those were the good old days. Those days are long behind us. We won't see their like again. But Christians, that's not the case for us. We will see a better day than the days that prevailed under Solomon. We, didn't, we won't likely, this side of glory, in a human sense, see days of such prosperity, days of such unity within our nation. But the day is coming when we will see perfect unity, when we will see a perfect kingdom under a perfect king. That's what we're looking forward to. Spurgeon, writing on these verses, said, uh, he pointed us ahead. And I want to read to you what he said. The present state of the church may be compared to the reign of David, splendid with victories, but disturbed with battles. Yet there are better days to come, days in which the kingdom shall be extended and become more manifest. And then the Lord Jesus Christ shall be even more conspicuously seen as the Solomon of God's kingdom. Therefore, looking at Solomon's kingdom is an excellent way for us to see the blessings that God has has for us in Jesus Christ. Solomon's kingdom was a little like heaven. But what we are looking forward to is the heaven and heavens. We're looking for the perfect kingdom. We're looking for all of these things, but not just prefigured and foreshadowed and in types and so on. We're looking for the truth. But we've seen times when God has raised up rulers. We remember that the more a man follows the wisdom of God, the more heavenly the situation of his life is, the more he despises the word of God and the Messiah the more hellish the situation becomes. That counts not just for individuals, but for nations and families. The more godly they are and the more God-oriented they are in their wisdom, the better off they are. It's always the case. So then individually, two things immediately should apply to us. The first is that we should seek as individuals and families to follow after God and to make sure that he's the one who's truly ruling in our households, regardless of what's happening around us. It shouldn't be the case that we are absorbing the worldview, absorbing the, the, the godly, or godless, rather, uh, worldly wisdom of the world, and then trying to apply that and find happiness within it. But instead, we should be applying godly wisdom in our lives and following the Lord. If we do that, Although we will still have problems this side of glory, yet we will be living in the truest sense the best that we can. But it won't be our best life now. As the saying goes, if you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. We're looking forward to perfection in the next life. 
but we can have that foretaste here on earth. Let us attempt to live the best we can, following the Lord in our own lives, in our own families, and in our own nations. Let us vote according to that formula as well. Let us do all that we can to elect rulers who know the Lord and who will govern wisely. Let us do all that we can to avoid that temptation to act pragmatically in our own lives and in our own governments. I know we're not supposed to, uh, to make mention of, of worldly government as it is today, but uh, the, the fact is we, we don't need more pragmatic politicians making economic promises to us, offering us other people's money or uh, the ability to keep more of our own. What we need, actually, brothers and sisters, are men and women who love the Lord and who will govern according to His will. Let's vote for that as far as we can and see if we can establish the best ruled government we can here on earth. But let's be first looking to our own lives and our own households. It's silly to, to start with the nation and not uh, expect, and expect things to be going well if our own households aren't governed well. Let's start with our own hearts, our own nation, our own little household of faith. Let's seek to govern that according to God's word looking to him and his promises. Let's go before the Lord now. God, our Father, I do ask that you would help us to be a people who seek your wisdom. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We ask for the blessings that can only come to those who who love you and who are willing to do your will here on earth. I do pray, Lord, that you would give us governors in the church, in the family, and in the nation who love you and who love your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us men and, wisdom, uh, men and women who have true wisdom in whatever areas of life that we have, whether they are teachers, whether they are officers, whether they are rulers, magistrates, or officials of various kinds, or just parents, Lord. We pray for godly wisdom, and we pray you would give it to us as well. Help us to choose good advisors, and help us above all to be following after people who can say in truth, as Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. And I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.